Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today's guest is U.S. Navy Admiral Ron Perrett. Admiral Perrett discusses leading the Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Command. It's a command with a domain that starts at the bottom of the ocean and extends to the stars. Our leadership discussion ranges from recruiting the talented, highly technical people who make up the command to recognition, career development, trust building, and how great leaders resist the urge to use their rank to get things done. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software. At Inspire, they're committed to helping you achieve superior business results by improving performance, retention, and engagement. Learn more at InspireSoftware.com. Admiral Perrett, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Don. I appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast and discuss the great work that our military and civilian professionals bring to the Navy and the nation. Let's start out with your background. Where did you grow up and how did you get interested in a career in the Navy? I actually grew up in Chico, California, and that's a small farming community in the Northern Valley, north of Sacramento. And I grew up in a family of small business owners and farmers. And it really was through the support of my, my parents. And I actually had a reserve naval officer that was a neighbor and really brought to my parents and my attention the opportunities for a young person in the Navy. And as a chance would have it, one of my very good friends growing up, his father had reti just retired from the Navy after 30 years and had attended the Naval Academy. And uh, that kind of started the discussion on where I might attend college and what careers were available in the Navy. And it, and it really just progressed from there. And I will just say that I actually had a chance just this summer to go back and visit my neighbor now as a flag officer and get a chance to thank him and my parents for really setting me on a, a path that's been highly rewarding, personally and professionally. That kind of leads into the next question, which is around mentorship. And I'm assuming that neighbor of yours was something of a mentor to you to kind of guide you into the military and into the Navy. What sort of mentors have you had throughout your career and what sort of role have they played throughout your career? Mentorship's really important. And sometimes in my own experience, it's not formalized. I think now we're a little more thoughtful on how we engage young professionals and frankly, how young professionals can help a senior leaders. And so that mentorship really goes up and down, which is really quite useful. I've had several mentors of all different varieties, whether in uniform or in civilian, broad civilian life as well. As a matter of fact, uh, just over the summer, I would consider one of my uh, very good friends from childhood, his wife, as one of my mentors, as she is a CFO in the IT industry. And I always enjoy talking to her, the leadership challenges that she addresses, workforce development. And she probably doesn't even know that uh, she's one of my mentors. But certainly starting in, in school, having advisors that you know really took an interest and in challenging me on broadening my scope to officers and chiefs that I've worked with or for have really been instrumental. When I reflect on that, I certainly don't have one mentor. And I would almost consider that I've got this board of advisors. And chances are many of them just don't realize how important they are in informing my own perspectives and, and really broadening my scope. So I, if I gave advice to anybody is, hey, never just have one mentor, 
you know, really think it, think of it as a board of advisors and then think about what each one of those individuals really brings from their experience and even the type of judgment they apply. So I kind of pick and choose depending on the challenge that, I, that I'm faced with on, on who I might call and ask advice or provide a sounding board on. It's interesting because that's been my experience as well. None of my mentoring relationships have been formal. They've all been informal. And some of the people I've never met. When did you know that you could have a, a high-ranking leadership position in the Navy? Was there an inflection point or a, a period or an event that happened in your career? My compass was never pointed at this destination. And I've been asked this a few times. And of course, anyone who finds themselves in a, in a senior position probably thinks about that talking head song, you know, how did I get here, I think is, is part of that. And I think the answer to that is I was very fortunate that when we go back to mentorship or people who we tend to set up as examples for ourselves or see some aspect of ourselves in them, if they did it, perhaps I can too. And giving that confidence to ourselves to move into positions or take on challenges that you're uncomfortable with. And I think that's really important is understanding that to grow, there's a certain level of discomfort required, but that nobody ever feels fully prepared for all of the responsibilities that come their way. And knowing that, I think really opens up the doors to conversations to ask advice of people that you work with or mentors that you hold in high regard. So for me, it's really been, you know, certainly what I, I learned growing up in my parents' house from a work ethic and then understanding that it's okay to feel a little bit uncomfortable pursuing a goal, you know, knowing that you'll grow into it. And, and I have a firm, a firm belief that people are, are truly much more capable than they often give themselves credit for. And individuals really tend to rise to the occasion. And, and frankly, that's been one of the most inspirational experiences that I've had in my naval career is to watch people do incredible things. Can you talk about your current role and what the mission of the people you lead is? I am the commander of Naval Meteorology and Oceanography. So I head up an organization of about 2,600 military and civilian professionals. We are really organized in 14 commands that span from Yokosuka, Japan, all the way to Bahrain and the Persian Gulf. And it's really a broad portfolio that we are responsible for. So when you take a look behind me, really, it, it starts with us, if you will, really means every ship that sails, every aircraft that takes flight, every submarine that dives beneath the surface of the ocean has to go to sea with the information that naval oceanography provides. And it's not just about safety of navigation and safety of flight. It's also ensuring that we provide them the very important information to posture their forces effectively and really improve their access and maneuver in the areas of interest. We really are responsible from the bottom of the ocean, literally to the stars. And, and so we, we map the bottom of the ocean to, to understand the features there for safety of navigation, its applications to mine warfare, and those impacts to acoustics and how the ocean dynamics are working, as well as the atmospherics and how we can do a better job of predicting both changes in the atmosphere and in the ocean for performance of platforms, weapon systems, and battle space characterization. When it comes to mapping the stars, that's also really important, not only for the Navy, but also the nation. 
That's how you're able to navigate with precision across the globe. And it's an instrumental part with regards to measuring time very precisely and how that feeds into navigation to fire control solutions, if you will, but also in everyday life for the nation. How you use your cell phone requires time for that information to flow back and forth. It's how we use our phones for navigation when you use Apple or Google Maps, as an example. And so we take a lot of pride that our professionals in uniform and in civil service really touch every aspect of maritime operations and naval warfare. And they're really tackling some of the the most challenging problems. I got to tell you, that's also inspiring. In one of the interviews that I listened to, I think it was you who said that you're Group captures 40 million data points per day. Is that accurate? We'll ingest 40 million observations daily. And that's probably somewhere in the order of, this is where you have to learn to be an IT person as well. We have petabytes of data every day. So in order to characterize the atmosphere in the ocean, we bring in that data from all sources, government, commercial, partner nations. And we bring that in put that into our ocean and atmospheric models, characterize the environment, and then work that into the prediction space with our modeling efforts as well. The reason I ask that is because obviously you have an incredibly technically talented group of people, and it's my understanding that half of them are civilians, half are military. And I'm curious, what's the benefits of having a mixed population like that rather than having just 100% military personnel? It's really the best of both worlds, and it's really been quite an experience. And I get to talk to sailors and officers who maybe have been in a military uniform-centric organization, and then they may move into one of our commands where they're, they're dealing with civilians who are very scientific in nature and really problem solvers. And so to, to really answer your question, you know, the, the civilians really give us this deep, deep bench of expertise and, and very specialized disciplines. And the uniform side brings into the conversation the relevant tactical and operational challenges, as well as understanding how to apply this information in a forward deployed area of operations so that it's of value to the fleet. And, you know, that's really the synergy that the team has. And and to see these group of individuals really tackle a problem together is really seeing our nation as at its best, frankly. So when we talk about total force, we are talking about our uniform members and our, our civil servants who are really just, just as dedicated and spend, you know, frankly, decades in service, not only ashore, but also afloat. Uh, so we talked about those individuals working on atomic clocks, astrometry, ocean modeling, atmospheric modeling, as well as actually going to sea and collecting that operational oceanographic data, as well as um, mapping the ocean floors. So we're really doing it all the way from data collect to battle space characterization, to creating a, a predictive space in our modeling capabilities. And ultimately, that we turn that into decision space for the combatant commanders. And we try to do that to give them as much maneuver, maneuverability to employ their forces in the most effective manner. As you're fully aware, recruiting technically capable people is really, really challenging, particularly over the last few years. And I wonder if you have some keys for 
how you attract them to a career in service. Yeah, it's actually one of my passions is really attracting the very best talent, not only to serve in uniform, but in civil service. As you've probably seen during the past year, our social media presence has significantly increased. And one aspect of that is to tell our story to the nation, tell our story to senior leaders in government as well, so that they understand what capability the naval oceanography brings to the Navy and the nation. But the other aspect of that is to highlight the opportunities of service within a naval oceanography, whether that be in uniform or in civil service. And I think understanding the kind of challenges that we're, that, there were, that we're working on, the breadth of opportunities that are available to somebody in a career that can span several decades is really incumbent upon us to tell our story and, and get young professionals excited about working these kind of challenges and, and service to their nation. So really, when we talk about that, we're talking about diversity. When we're talking about recruiting the type of talent, are people from different parts of the United States? Do they attend different institutions that approach problem solving? Have they grown up in an area that perhaps brings a certain difference in thought, if you will, that strengthens the team? So I think on the uniform side, we as a Navy do a very good job of building a diverse team. And one of my goals is to, is to do the same level of effort and the same quality of recruiting in our civil service as well. In, in partnership with some other Navy commands, we're really going to make an effort to get to all four corners, if you will, of the United States and make, make those communities more aware of the opportunities in the Navy and Naval Oceanography and, and see if we can attract more talent into our ranks. There are certain engagement levers or ways in which we can motivate people as, as leaders. And one of them is through recognition. And the military is known for accommodations and medals and more ceremonial recognition. But can you talk about some of the informal recognition moments that you have had as a leader that, or, or ways in which you've used informal recognition in order to motivate and engage your team? Yeah, I appreciate that question. And it's it's something that we we ask ourselves continually because I you can never do enough there. And I think, as you kind of stated, there are some formal mechanisms to recognize individuals or teams that have achieved a certain challenge or milestone. But I think more importantly is what I'm what I find in talking to people who stay with a team or even leave a team is really about creating an environment where they they know that they are valued, that they know that they are heard. And even that dissent is valued, frankly, that the, you creating an environment where people feel safe and are even encouraged to provide a counter opinion. And then having that discussion, if that opinion isn't the, you know, changes the decision, let's say, but understanding that it actually informed that decision in a more robust fashion. So I remember having an individual at one point how do I say this, apologize for kind of always being the skeptic. And, and I wrote them a note and I told them, I said, you, you have no idea the value you bring to the discussion and don't, don't ever let that go. Skepticism is not cynicism, right? Skepticism is asking hard questions of ourselves to ensure that our decision is well-informed and that, that we are doing the very best with the resources at hand. And, uh, and it really takes a team that includes that, you know, has that kind of diversity in order to be at its very best with that. So when it comes to, uh, 
looking to retain talent or recruit talent, you know, build trust and, and motivate. I find that if you create that at that kind of atmosphere, it generates its own level of enthusiasm. It generates its incredible level of job satisfaction that an end of year bonus or, you know, an award may highlight fleetingly, but that's not how you keep the very best over the long term. You talked for a moment about trust, and I think that's a really important foundational element that organizations and leaders need to establish as quickly as possible. And in the military, you're going from assignment to assignment, and you're you're leading new people. They may have they may know your reputation, but they don't necessarily know you. What are two or three things that you do to quickly establish trust of a new team that you're leading? I, I don't know that there's any quick way to establish it, but there sure are quick ways to lose it. <laughs> Lessons that I've learned, things that I've observed when joining an organization is to remind ourselves first to listen and observe, you know, to gain a better understanding of the culture and the environment that you're in. I think also understanding the composition of that team or your audience and what the backgrounds may be so that you communicate effectively is is really quite important. And third, you know, just realize that you can't that you can't rush trust. You know, it takes time and you have to invest in the relationships. And so that when you have to have tough conversations, you you don't shy away from them. And in fact, the the fact that you can have that kind of candid exchange really strengthens the trust and the partnership really. And that can be I think that can be observed internally to an organization, but I'm also reminded reminded of that in our engagement with our international partners. I think just over the summer, I had a I had an exchange with a partner, and I think it opened up with the fact that hey, you're going to tell us if we're not going to be good partners, right? And I really appreciated that that olive branch, and and I said absolutely, and and certainly I reciprocate that because I think we're. We're good enough partners that we can we can be that honest with each other so that we are really getting getting to our shared interests more quickly. And, and that's what we strive to engender within within our organizations as well. One of the things that that makes me think of is just having confidence. And when you've been there and done that a number of times, you have the confidence to be able to say that and, and disclose, hey, tell me if I'm not being a great partner, I'll do the same for you. I wonder if self-disclosure is another thing that you have used in the past to establish trust, maybe telling a story about when something didn't go as you had expected or a failure or something of that nature. There was an ad I think my my wife posted on the refrigerator at home. I don't know if it was meant to be there for my viewing or for our children's viewing. The gist of it was let failure fuel you. There's days where I definitely feel well-fueled with that, but certainly confidence in your own uh, competency is important, but uh, also recognizing when you don't know something and having the confidence to ask is, is certainly important, and that builds trust as well. I'll, I'm, I'm reminded uh, about 20 or 25 years ago, I was on an exchange tour with another Navy, and the quip at times it was, here we are, two nations, you know, divided by a common language. And uh, that, that always reminded me of uh, the challenges. Even when you're speaking the same language, you can still uh, 
there can still be friction in that. There can still be challenges in the relationship. But the fact that, that you can have a sense of humor about those situations uh, really puts things in context and uh, can lighten the mood. So I bring that around to, to you know, disclosure and, and failures, you know, whether that is building trust inside of organization or with an international partner and saying, well, you know, these are the things we'd like to do. And I, and I ask you to challenge us on that so that we can break down barriers so that we can do better. So don't shy away you know, from a request or a requirement just because you're not sure what the response will be. You should be comfortable. If, if, if we can meet the, the need, then we will. If we have to work on it for a while, then we'll, we'll own up to the barriers that we have internally to get there. And I think that's the same in, inside of leading an organization when a challenge is brought to you, that you're, you're honest about understanding that challenge. And then also, hey, what you can do about it and when you can do something about it. And I think that goes a long way to, to building trust. I'm fond of seeing that high potential and high performing people have opportunities in any economy, whether we're high flying or tanking. And I wonder if you have a process or an approach to make sure that the people working under you are getting the development opportunities they need. We take personal and professional development very seriously. And we really, really take a look at where we place individuals at what point in time in their career and what skill sets they need to develop. And that's not to say that we do it to the standard that we want across the board. So we're, some of these, we have very formal processes to develop individuals, and some of them are in, informal. But we take a lot of attention to how we have designed our workforce and provided paths and opportunities for development, not just promotion, but broadening skill sets as well. The best leaders I've ever worked with rarely ever use their position or power to get things done. And I wonder, how do you resist the urge to use your rank to get people to execute? I actually really appreciate that question. And there's a lot of literature out there now on leadership, and, and there's a lot of value in that. But some of the most impactful things that I've read have really been biographies, history, and at, at sometimes people sharing their personal stories, if you will. And certainly we can talk about authority is one thing and using your position, but that rarely leads to a highly effective organization. It's really about, our, can you effectively build a team and can you effectively communicate the purpose that this group has come together and, and what we're trying to achieve collectively? So for me, when you are at a very senior level, I think one of the most important attributes you can exercise is restraint. I keep a quote in the front of my day planner to remind me, or a couple of them, and certainly exercising restraint is one of coupled with restraint is listening and truly listening with that. So I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but I'm reminded again and again that the most effective leaders, regardless of the walk of life or line of business they're in, are generally people who can exercise restraint, certainly have humility in terms of understanding their own failures and limitations, being able to see and uplift the very best in the people that they work with. I think that's fair. And I can think back to probably three times in my career where I used my position and my power in a way that was not healthy. And those are the ones that I regret the most. And I, you know, I feel really bad about it. I learned from that. So 
instead of telling people what to do, I ask them, would you do this? And it, it really changes the dynamic of the relationship. People, people want to do things for you. The next question is a topic that I don't feel gets enough discussion, and that's around the sacrifices many leaders have to make in order to be successful and, and help enable the success of their people. And I wonder if you could talk about sacrifices you've, you've seen leaders make, whether it's yourself or others in the U.S. Navy, but, you know, the sacrifice with time, the number of hours you're working, time away from family, things of that nature. We, we oftentimes think about the salaries and the benefits and the perks that go along with being a leader, but there's, there's another side of it. And I wonder if you could comment on that. I always appreciate, and, and many in uniform have been thanked for their service. And I appreciate the sentiment because I think it recognizes that those who are in uniform or in civil service, you know, really could have other opportunities. The talent is there, the work ethic is there, and, and being in service does come with a number of fantastic opportunities that have to be balanced with the time away from family, perhaps the moving of the family ge geographically and uh, being open to other opportunities because of your obligation in the service. But I, I really don't think that uh, those in civil service or the uniform really you know, regret those choices because they are in informed choices. And they take a lot of pride in being part of an organization, working for something that we, we really think of as the greater good, really in the best interests of the nation, really, really understanding what it takes to sustain our way of life and the freedoms that we enjoy. And certainly, if you've had opportunities to travel around the globe, we should not take those freedoms and opportunities for granted. The rule of law is something that uh, we are founded upon. And uh, really, it's the tide that, that raises all, all boats uh, here in the nation. And it really raises the opportunities for our partner nations uh, as well. Uh, so I, I think that those who come into the service understand those challenges, understand the sacrifices that their families make. And uh, certainly that is a part of the discussion when we host events where family members are present. We're actually thanking our families for their service that allows us to do what we do. Because frankly, we couldn't. We couldn't be our very best if our families didn't take pride in, in being part of a Navy family or even a military family. And that extends to our, our, our civil servants as well, because they are deploying and going around the world, spending time away from their families as well. It's just not the uniform side of the Navy that does it. It's really the total force. Naval meteorology and oceanography is a very innovative group of people, 2,500 people working under you. And one of the cultural attributes of an innovative organization is handling failure and creating psychological safety. And you talked about psychological safety earlier, or safety and, and dissent. How, how do you handle failure and how do you foster that psychological safety as a leader? Well, I think recently in the in the past year, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, has really done a great job in terms of creating a vernacular for us under get real, get better. And and part of that aspect is is really being, you know, highly analytical in terms of how we are doing. Are we truly operating it to the best of our ability? And and if not, what do we do about it? And that's really meant to empower. And so that's, again, going across your organizations, you know, and really asking ourselves for candid feedback from every level, regardless of position or experience, because each one of those individuals really provides a lens that's unique that, that adds to the discussion. 
So when we're approaching a problem and trying to, to drive to a solution, you know, one of the things is, is investing the time in those discussions so that we have a common understanding amongst all the stakeholders, internal and external. And do we understand the core of the critical challenges? And if, and if we do understand that, then is our goal, is it achievable? Because I think that the challenge in innovation, right? And certainly I think um, uh, a lot of folks who have been entrepreneurs and, and really tried to be innovative, how do you... How do you identify a clear path from the inception of an idea to the development, the uh, iteration and refinement of that solution and, and get across what we in the Department of Defense call the valley of death? <laughs> you know, meaning, hey, we proved the concept. Now, how do you implement it at scale? Uh, right. And, and maybe that's an integration issue. Maybe it's a funding issue. But have you identified the critical barriers can you solve them yourself? If not, do you raise those obstacles to the appropriate level to find the help? Because sometimes uh, in high achieving organizations, we want to solve all our own problems. But I think the challenge that the Chief of Naval Operations is posing to the fleet under Get Real, Get Better is, you know, do the self-analysis, devise a solution that's achievable and sustainable. And if there's barriers in the, in the way, elevate and challenge leadership to help you solve them. And so my team has done that. They have brought a few barriers to me and saying, all right, Admiral, game on. It's time for you to move out. What advice do you have for a young person who wants a career in leadership, whether it's in the Navy, in government, or in the private sector? One, one piece of advice for them. Well, it's the same advice I give myself. Do not shy away from the challenge. Do not consider yourself either undeserving or not capable of doing that work. I think if, if you show the courage to, to step in and pursue a, a goal, I think again and again, at least in my own experience, there are more uh, helping hands out there that are looking to see other people succeed than you could ever imagine. But it takes humility to ask for help. It takes humility to, to identify where you might need some assistance and either to grow or an opportunity to demonstrate what you're capable of. So as a young person who's embarking on a career or whatever that is, I would just say, A, discomfort is okay, but don't let that emotion overrule your ambitions because I, I think you'll find that the, there are people looking to, to assist young people who are really looking for a challenge and wanting to serve. Well, just to let our audience know, I know you came from a meeting with a couple of U.S. senators and maybe some other members of Congress. You're a very busy man, and we're so grateful for your time and your wisdom today. Admiral Perrette, thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We'll be back next week with another episode. I talk with Brett Grease about his approach to leadership and how he rose through the ranks to the CEO position at CSG International. Thank you again to Inspire Software for sponsoring this episode. Thanks also to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.